recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christoginia Saturdays. Today is Saturday, October 18th, 2014. I have a few short announcements. Tomorrow, Christoginia Europe, without Sven Longshanks, he's still having um, connectivity problems. He still has no internet service at his home, and he surely can't do a program at Christagenia from from the local library. That's that that's probably taboo. So we're going to um keep the program scheduled and, and even if it's a little brief, I do have a couple of ideas for tomorrow's program and, and we're going to roll with them. It should be at two PM Eastern time tomorrow afternoon. People are invited to participate if they could call in the talk show. Of course, trolls are excluded. We are going to make an effort to bring a new Minecraft Project website at Christagenia online this week. The site will be much improved, it's better organized, and it's much better technology than what we had before. Not that what we had before was... Um, was bad that site had well over a quarter million visits in um probably four years, if I remember correctly. And um while that's not exactly earth shattering, for the topic that it covers, it's um certainly good. Clifton Emmerheiser's website has had many improvements. His um Watchman's Teaching Letter Podcasts, which our dear brother and friend Dan Adams, of course, that's a pseudonym, is doing for us. They are available all on one page. And the first three pages, or maybe about 70 of his podcasts, and then if you skip ahead to page six, you'll find a few more, are, are available now at Christagenia. The... Um, Podcasts of Clifton's teaching letters are very well done, and we are proud to present them and grateful for Dan's labors. There's also on Christagenia, on, on Clifton's website, an alphabetical listing of his papers on the right-hand side now. The, um, the original categories that I tried to make for Clifton's papers just are, 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 um, to make it too difficult to find anything. And, and um, probably cause people to do too much work to want to go try to find something. The alphabetical listing is um, is quite long, so it's broken into sections, and there's a pager at the bottom. But it, it, it's probably a big improvement. It'll make it easier to find some of Clifton's topic, or even to just browse the papers and, and their titles and find something to read. Once again, we continue with our criticism of Martin Luther's On the Jews and Their Lives, written in 1543. This will be the 17th segment in our ongoing series presenting and critiquing Luther's essay. We go through nine parts of Luther's 13-part essay, and tonight we shall present part 10, Yahweh willing. Luther spent much of part nine 
arguing against the Jews on the basis of the 70 weeks prophecy of the Messiah, which is found in Daniel chapter 9, and where he actually did an excellent job. His interpretations of that chapter of Daniel are, to the greatest extent, still upheld by Christian identity scholars today, even if mainstream evangelicals in their own sycophancy have departed from Luther's interpretation to create some crazy science fiction view of that prophecy. It, it's nuts. I don't even want to repeat it. Luther's interpretations of that chapter of Daniel were very good, and he correctly saw all 70 weeks of Daniel's prophecy to be fulfilled by 70 AD. In this part of his essay, however, Luther turns an entirely fresh leaf. Some of his arguments are very protracted and run on and on, and, and we're kind of happy that he's actually moving on to something else. In the opening of part 10 of Luther's treatise, which we are about to present, we shall see a reference to what Luther called the Shamhamphorus. Shamhamphorus is a transliteration of the phrase, and a very um, Yiddish one at that, which the rabbinical Jews were thought to employ to refer to the Tetragrammaton, that was Luther's perspective. That was also the perspective of Jews themselves, such as Maimonides. Maimonides was a, um, a, a rabbinical devil of perhaps the 11th or 12th centuries, I forget. Luther thought that the Shem Hamphorus was used by the Jews to refer to the Tetragrammaton, which is yad Hey thou hey in Hebrew letters, or as we usually pronounce it in English, Yahweh. This phrase, Shem Ham Forus, evidently coming from the Hebrew phrase Shem Ha Mephorash, can be understood to mean the ineffable name. In reality, the Jewish rabbis take this idea of the Shem Ham Forest into the Kabbalah, where they create versions, versions of the, the, the supposed name of God in 12, 22, 42, or 72-letter varieties in their own sick propensity to cause confusion. That's what the Jews do best. Their confused, mongrelized minds breed nothing but confusion. Christians hear the phrase, the ineffable name, and imagine that means that the name of God cannot be understood, and therefore it cannot be uttered. That's hogwash. That is precisely what the Jews would hope that Christians continue to believe. In actuality, the word ineffable 
refers to something which is too great or too powerful or too beautiful or even too revolting or too disgusting, depending upon the context, to be described or expressed. The Jews have claimed that the name of Yahweh is too great to be expressed, and therefore its expression is not permitted. Here we have two citations from Flavius Josephus, the Judean, he was no Jew, the Judean historian, who himself had descended from a prominent family of Levitical priests, was educated as a Pharisee, but at the beginning, first spent some of the years of his youth as an Essene, then he switched to the party of the Pharisees. From um. And this is just to give us some background on how long it has been that the Jews, or initially the Judeans, and we're not told exactly when this happened, but we see it in Josephus, that the Jews were forbidding people to use the name of God, the name Yahweh. From Antiquities, Book 2, from line 275, Moses, having now seen and heard these wonders, he's talking about the Exodus chapter 3 account, that assured him of the truth of these promises of God, had no room left to disbelieve them. He entreated him to grant him that power when he should be in Egypt, and besought God to vouchsafe him the knowledge of his own name. And since he had heard and seen him, that he would also tell him his name that when he offered sacrifice, he might invoke him by his name in his oblations. Whereupon God declared to him his holy name, which had never been revealed to men before. Now, we do not personally believe that this is the personal name of God. We don't believe God can have a personal name. But the word Yahweh expresses and conveys a meaning which should be important to all Christians. That's a subject for another time. Whereupon God declared to him his holy name, which had never been revealed to men before, concerning which, and this is the important part, this is Josephus writing probably about 80 or 90 A.D., concerning which... It is not lawful for me to say any more. So we see that the utterance of the name of Yahweh was forbidden to Judeans by the time of Flavius Josephus, and actually before that, long before that. Now these signs accompanied Moses, not then only, but always when he prayed for them, of all which signs he attributed the firmest ascent to the fire in the bush, and believing that God would be a gracious supporter to him, he hoped that he should be able to deliver his own nation and bring calamities on the Egyptians. Now, Flavius Josephus, War of the Judeans, Wars of the Judeans, not Antiquities, Wars, separate book, book five where he is describing the garments worn by the high priest, which at his time were worn only on the Day of Atonement. And we'll only read the account in part, the account which is pertinent to our conversation here. 
And he says, a miter also of fine linen surrounded his head, which was tied by a blue ribbon, about which there was another golden crown, in which was engraved the sacred name of God. It consists of four vowels. However, the high priest did not wear these garments at other times, and he's speaking about the Day of Atonement, but more plain clothes. He only did it, meaning wear, wear these garments, he only did it when he went into the most sacred part of the temple, which he did but once in a year, on that day when our custom is for all of us to keep a fast to God. That's the Day of Atonement, if you read the Scriptures. So we see Josephus say, and he's writing in Greek, and he's saying that the name of God can be pronounced with four vowels. We can take that knowledge, and we can take the um, form of the Hebrew tetragrammaton, yod, hey, vow, hey, which is actually not four vowels, because Hebrew doesn't have vowels properly, but it has what we would consider consonantal vowels, vowels that are also consonants. And the yod, we see that even in English, can be represented with an I or with a Y. The U can, in English can also at times be a consonant. The, um, the H or the H and the VAV, the V, the V or the U are interchangeable. They're interchangeable in not only um, Hebrew, but also we see the form is changed back and forth in Latin. And it's, um, it's argued by language scholars to this very day whether Julius Caesar actually said veni vidi vici when he crossed the Rubicon or if he said veni vidi vici. We see that there's dispute over the interchangeability of the U and the V in Latin. In Greek... The V was often represented by the letter B when it was taken from another language. So Greek is a totally different story. With our understanding that the tetragrammaton can be pronounced with four vowels, the only, um, even though it may not be perfect, the only logical conclusion is that Yahweh is a fairly accurate pronunciation or expression in English of the tetragrammaton. And that too is an argument for another time. My point is to show how long it's been that the name of Yahweh was forbidden to be pronounced. The Septuagint can be pointed to, and people could say, aha, see that? The Septuagint uses the term kurios. But the truth is that the Septuagint manuscripts which we have are not as old as the Septuagint themselves. We don't have any original Septuagint manuscripts. But in the Dead Sea Scrolls, 
there were found sufficient portions of manuscripts of what we recognize as the Greek Septuagint. And wherever the word kurios, or Lord, could be expected to appear, appeared instead the Hebrew tetragrammaton in Hebrew letters. So it's evident that at least one sect in ancient Judea, which would be labeled as the Qumran sect, did not accept the word kurios for the tetragrammaton, and instead chose to repeat the Tetragrammaton itself in Greek manuscripts. That's a digression from our material. And the reason why we are presenting all of this will soon become apparent. The idea that the name of Yahweh is ineffable, meaning that it should not be expressed, is absolutely contrary to all Scripture, and that too, is a theological argument for another time, but one is easily won simply by a, a precursory inspection of the Psalms or of Jeremiah or of Isaiah. It is only because of ages-old Jewish perfidy that it is an argument at all. Luther understood the Tetragrammaton. He understood that it was the name of God in Scripture, but in another essay, which we will describe shortly, he wrote that the word was only letters on a piece of paper. Obviously, he had no compulsion to use them in German. He developed this perspective, not out of malice, but in answer to the Jewish contention that the Tetragrammaton, Yahweh, had the power of a magical incantation. The Jews at the time, the Jews claimed that because Christ knew and expressed this name, that that was why he was able to perform miracles. He had the secret word. Luther effectively argued against and ridiculed the Jews for that position. Because with it, the Jews admit first that the accounts of the miracles were true. And Luther notes that the Jews never doubt the veracity of the miracles themselves. But, Luther contests, if they were only possible through the use of the name, no one else has been able to use that name as an incantation in order to repeat them. So Luther's argument in that aspect is very effective, and we will see it soon. As for that other essay which I'd mentioned, which was titled Of the Unknowable Name and the Generations of Christ, this paper was written in 1543, the same year as On the Jews and Their Lives. And this paper addressed this topic which Luther introduces here in Part 10 at great length. From the title, however, Luther evidently thought that by the phrase, 
Shem Ha Mefarash. The Jews were referring to the Tetragrammaton as unknowable. In truth, the Jews considered the Tetragrammaton unknowable because they considered it inexpressible. For other reasons, they considered it unknowable. The reference to an unknowable name is first because the Jews don't want you to know the name. They don't want the name of Yahweh disseminated in the world. I've had personal experience when expressing the name of Yahweh, of seeing Jews actually go livid. It drives them crazy, and I love it. I'll say it again. But the reference, the Jewish reference to an unknowable name, when the rabbis use it, is actually a reference to all of the Jewish gibberish found in their Kabbalistic perversions and permutations, where they attempt to name, to, to make 72-letter names for God and 42-letter names for God and 22-letter names for God and then argue back and forth with one another incessantly, interminably, over what the name of God should be, so they've arrived at the conclusion that it's unknowable. Well, the Talmud and the Kabbalah are a perfect reflection of the perverted Jewish mind. Wherever the Jew goes, he sows confusion in every aspect of life, in every topic he treats. Gibberish, it should be gibberish. So far as I could find, Luther's of the unknowable name and the generations of Christ, the essay that the other essay he wrote against the Jews in 1543, was not translated into English until it appeared in a book written by a Jew named Gerhard Falk and published in 1992. I would not want to employ his translation even if I could. There is a website, however, and this is interesting, by a Missouri Lutheran who is evidently named Franz Piper. And he is making, if it is not already complete, his own translation of Luther's paper, which in German is abbreviated Vom Sham Hamphorus. While identity Christians would consider Piper as something of a Judeo-Christian, he is a traditional Lutheran and argues that the Lutheran church should revert to the teachings of its namesake and, of course, reject the Jews for the evil bastards they are. Of course, it would certainly be better off if it did do that. So Piper is at least on the right track. Piper does not like the Jew Gerhard Fock's translation of Luther's paper, saying that Fock makes an assault on a Christian faith, attempts to discredit Luther, and defends Jews. And then he goes on to say that Dr. Fock is still busy today with his straw man arguments in defense of the Jews, all while, while all the time ignoring Luther's real point that the Jews are without a Messiah and lost forever. They hate the true Christian doctrine 
And of course they do. But the Jews, the truth is, the Jews are devils, and they were never supposed to be Christians. You do not believe me, because you are not my sheep. If Luther had only understood the simple and eternally true meaning of those words of Christ, and applied it, if he only accepted them at face value, all Christians today would be a hell of a lot better off. Before Luther's time, a couple hundred years before Luther's time, there were Judensau sculptures on some of the cathedrals and in other places in Europe. Jewish scholars feeding off of the devil's pig. Judensau means pig of the Jews, sow of the Jews. Jewish scholars feeding off of the devil's pig were the subject of drawings for at least a hundred years before Luther. There's one example dating to 1475, which was reproduced from a 19th century book and has long been posted at Christogenia. Evidently, the Judensau illustrations were originally made in order to make the connection that the Jews got their religion and their Talmud from the ass of a pig. Jews, under the tutelage of rabbis, were often depicted as nursing on a sow's teats. In his paper, Von Shem Hamphorus, Luther remarked on the Judensau sculpture at Wittenberg. There's a Judensau sculpture on the church at Wittenberg, the very church that Martin Luther preached in to this very day. I will post a photo of it when I post this podcast. Luther said, here on our church in Wittenberg, a sow is sculpted in stone. Young pigs and Jews lie suckling under her. Behind the sow, a rabbi is bent over the sow, lifting up her right leg, holding her tail high, and looking intensely under her tail and into her Talmud, as though he were reading something acute or extraordinarily, extraordinary, which is certainly where they got their Shamham Forest. However, in reality, Luther was not actually mocking or scoffing at the name of God, but rather he was mocking and scoffing at the Jewish contentions concerning that name. So we have to be careful not to under, misunderstand his intentions. Part 10, on the Jews and their lives, with numerous comments, of course. In the first place, they defame our Lord Jesus Christ, calling him a sorcerer and a tool of the devil. This they do because they cannot deny his miracles. Thus they imitate their forefathers, who said he casts out demons 
demons by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, Luke 11:15. They invent many lies about the name of God, the Tetragrammaton, saying that our Lord was able to define this name, which they call Shem Hamphoros. And whoever is able to do that, they say, is also able to perform all sorts of miracles. In other words, the Jews claim that the name of Yahweh was a magical incantation. That's how Christ healed those people. However, they cannot cite a single instance of any man who worked a miracle worth a gnat by means of this Shemham Forest. It is evident that as consummate liars they fabricate this about our Lord. For if such a rule of Shemham Forest were true, someone else would have employed it before or afterwards. And in the mind of the rabbinical Jew, he may really be referring to the Shemham Forest that they get from their Kabbalah which is not Yahweh, but some complex formula that only a total screwball would claim to understand. Or a Jew. There's really no difference. For if such a rule of Shemham Forest were true, someone else would have employed it before or afterward. Otherwise, how could one know that such power inhered was an integral part of, inhered in the Shemham forest? But this is too big a subject. After this book is finished, Luther, I plan to issue a special essay and relate what Porchettus writes on this subject, and that is a reference to the other essay that we spoke of, where Luther wrote an essay which would be translated into English of the unknowable name and the generations of Christ. And he drew a lot of his material from that, from a fellow named Porchettus. Porchettus is um, an interesting fellow. We, we would like to have more of his writing if any is available. This is the first time in this on the Jews and their lives that Luther finally cites a non-Jewish, a non-converso Christian in relation to his comments upon the Jews. This Porchettus is Victor Porchetto, P-O-R-C-H-E-T-T-O. He was Italian. He was a Genoese monk of the Roman Catholic Carthusian order, which was prominent in France. And he died about 1315 A.D., a long time, 250 years perhaps, before Luther is writing this essay. Towards the end of his life, Porchetto wrote essays against the Jews. He says, I plan to issue a special essay and relate what Porchettus writes on this subject. Porchettus would be the, the Latin 
or or German Latin permutation of porchetto. It serves them right that rejecting the truth of God, they have to believe instead such abominable, stupid, inane lies, and that instead of the beautiful face of the divine word, they have to look into the devil's black, dark, lying behind and worship his stench. So Luther interpreted the sow in the Judensau images to represent the devil himself. Later Germans used the term Judensau not in the sense of the sow of the Jew, but more appropriately in the sense of Jewish sow to refer to the Jew itself who truly is the devil. Luther goes on to say, in addition, they robbed Jesus of the significance of his name, which in Hebrew means savior or helper. The name Helfric or Hilfric was common among the old Saxons. This is the equivalent of the name Jesus. Today we might use the name Holfric, that is, one who can and will help. But the Jews, in their malice, call him Jesu, which in Hebrew is neither a name nor a word, but three letters, like ciphers or numeral, numeral letters. It is as if, for example, I were to take the three numeral letters, C, L, and V, as ciphers, and form the word clue, the V and the U being interchangeable. That is 155. In this manner, they use the name Yesu or Jesu. Yesu would be the proper German pronunciation of J-E-S-U, signifying 316. This number is then to denote another word in which Hebel Vorik is found. For further information on their devilish practices with such numbers and words, you may read Anthony Margarita, a fellow who is um, rather obscure to me. Anton Margarita was a 16th century Jewish Hebraist and another converso to Christianity. He was another possible source and influence on Martin Luther. This is the first time that Luther has, um, has mentioned him in, on the Jews and their lives. So he finally mentions a non-Jewish Christian and cites his work. And then he turns right around and cites a Jewish converso, a Jew pig, a Judensal. The first syllable in the Hebrew form of the name, which we enunciate in English as Joshua, which in Hebrew is the same name as the Hebrew personal name for Jesus, which we enunciate as Yahshua, is often reduced to a pronoun instead. 
Therefore, Jews claim that the Hebrew form of Jesus would mean he saves. Luther seems to tend towards this interpretation here. Yeshua is the way the Jews like to say it and spell it in English. Y-E-S-H-U-A. James Strong, in his concordance at Hebrew number 3091, which is the name Joshua, interprets that, that first syllable to come from the shortened form of the Tetragrammaton, which appears in other places in Scripture, especially in the Psalms several times, and in many other Hebrew names, such as Jehoram, Jehoshaphat, Josiah, Jehoash, and on and on. We would agree with Strong and interpret Joshua or the Hebrew form of the name Yahshua to mean Yahweh saved. Yahweh saves, or more fully, Yahweh is Savior. The Jew would howl in protest at that interpretation. No doubt. They want to take the name Yahweh out of the name of Christ because they don't want that connection made. Luther goes on to say, when a Christian hears them utter the word Yesu, as will happen occasionally when they are obliged to speak to us, he assumes that they are using the name Jesus, but in reality, they have numerable, numeral letters, J-E-S-U, in mind, and there would, only, there would be no, F, no E, I'm sorry, there would be no E in that equation. There's no vowel E in Hebrew, so for that reason, it would really be J-S-U, and that's why Luther likens the term to a three-letter formula. But in reality, they had the numeral letters Jesu in mind. That is, the numeral 316 in the blasphemous word Vorik. And when they utter the word Jesu in their prayer, they spit on the ground three times in honor of our Lord and of all Christians, moved by their great love and devotion. But when they are conversing with one another, they say, Deliator nomen ius, which means in plain words, may God exterminate his name. Don't ask me why the Jews would be speaking Latin. That's the way Luther portrays it. May God exterminate his name. Or, that, that's almost literal. Or may all the devils take him. And that's not literal. The term Yesu by itself is not, and we've seen that in identity Christianity circles, the term Yesu in reference to Christ is not in itself appropriate. Inappropriate, I'm sorry. The term Yesu is the simplest Greek form of the given name of Christ. Jesus is the nominative and the dictionary form of the name. And Jesus is the actual linguistic stem of Jesus. 
I cannot identify all of the linguistic permutations which Luther goes through here, except for now to say that the Hebrew word, or I believe it's a Hebrew word, vorik, which he's using, and he later on uses the phrase hebel vorik. Hebel vorik seems to mean folly and vanity by which Luther says that the Jews blasphemously identify Christ in equating his name ostensibly through some perverted Kabbalistic mathematical formula they equate the name of Jesus to this word Boric. That's what Luther is trying to tell us. He doesn't um, sufficiently explain it I am sure that the Jew, Anthony Margarita, who he quotes in this instance, probably explains it, well, I hate to say better, but he probably explains it sufficiently. It's immaterial. We should expect Jews to curse our God. Christians should should accept that the Jews are going to curse God, and therefore Christians should never even give the Jews any credibility as a people at all. He goes on to say, they treat us Christians similarly in receiving us when we go to them. They pervert the words, seed God will come in, literally be welcome to God. And they say, shed Wilkin, which means come devil, or there comes a devil. And Luther is saying that they are corrupting the German word seed, S-E-I-D, into the Hebrew word shed, which is actually Strong's number 7700. And shed in the Old Testament refers to a demon. Since we are not conversant with the Hebrew, they can vent their wrath on us secretly. While we suppose that they are speaking kindly to us, they are calling down hellfire and every misfortune on our heads. Such splendid guests we poor pious Christians are harboring in our country in the persons of the Jews. We who mean well with them would gladly serve their physical and spiritual welfare who suffer so many coarse wrongs from them. Then they also call Jesus a whore's son, saying that his mother Mary was a whore who conceived him in adultery with a blacksmith. I had to speak in his coarse manner, although I do so with great reluctance to combat the vile devil. And there he appropriately equates the Jew to the devil. Now they know very well that these lies are inspired by sheer hatred and spite solely for the purpose of bitterly poisoning the minds of their poor youth and the simple Jews against the person of our Lord lest they adhere to his doctrine, which they cannot refute. And Luther, once again, is leaving open the door for the conversion of Jews to Christianity.
which is contrary to the words of Christ. Christ said, may no good fruit come from this tree forever. Still, they claim to be the holy people to whom God must grant the Messiah by reason of their righteousness. In the Eighth Commandment, God forbade us to speak falsehoods against our neighbor, to lie, to deceive, to revile, to defile. This prohibition includes one's enemies. For when Zedekiah did not keep faith with the king of Babylon, he was severely rebuked for his lie by Jeremiah and Ezekiel and was also led into the wretched captivity because of it. Of course, neither Zedekiah nor Ezekiel were Jews. However, the Talmud does disparage Mary, the mother of Christ, as a whore in several places. Luther is certainly right about that. The Jewish treachery only serves to uphold the truths of the Christian gospel. Luther says, however, our noble princes of the world and circumcised saints, and Luther is again referring to the Jews sarcastically, against this commandment of God invented this beautiful doctrine, namely, that they may freely lie, blaspheme, curse, defame, murder, rob, and commit every vice. However, whenever and on whom they wish... Let God keep his own commandment. The noble blood and circumcised people will violate it as they desire and please. Despite this, they insist that they are doing right and good and meriting the Messiah and heaven thereby. They challenge God and all the angels to refute this, not to speak of the devil and the accursed Goyim who find fault with it, for here is the noble blood which cannot sin, and which is not subject to God's commands. We must digress from Luther's main point momentarily. It is true that Scripture demanded the Israelites to have one law for both themselves and for the sojourners among them. The sojourners were properly gare strangers. Gare means a guest. Strong's Hebrew number 1616, and that's also how Strong defined it. The gare is properly a guest, which is someone from outside who has been permitted to enter and who expects certain rights and hospitality. These gare strangers are not to be confused with racial aliens who interlope in the lands of others, who make their own way into the communities of others. Failure to make this distinction is the bane of all scriptural interpretation. From Exodus chapter 12, from verse 49, one law shall be to him that is home-born, and unto the stranger that sojourns among you. The word stranger there 
And where the same law is repeated in Leviticus chapter 24 and twice in Numbers chapter 15, is Strong's number 1616, Gare, or Guest. The scripture does not require the Israelite to follow any foreign laws that would be contrary to scripture. I am Yahweh your God. You will have no other gods before me. Ostensibly, if guests were required to follow the same laws as the Israelites, and if Israelites were required to uphold the law for themselves as well as for guests equally, which the law requires them to do, the guests could therefore not tempt Israelites to sin against God. So the admonition that the guests had the same law as the Israelites was for the benefit of Israel and was not for the accommodation of the guests. Although it would assure that the guests were treated fairly according to the law of God if they violated the law. Alien interlopers were not assured any such protection. The Canaanites didn't have the license to force themselves upon the Israelites and expect to be treated according to the Hebrew law. Niggers that sneak into your neighborhood, they are not your neighbors. What Luther did not understand entirely is that the Jews, they are alien interlopers amongst Christians. And therefore, they do not treat Christians with any hospitality, as Luther himself attests. Because they are alien interlopers, we should not look to Scripture in order to protest their treatment of Christians. Wolves shouldn't be expected fair treatment under the law when they start eating sheep. Jews are actually devils who cannot participate in a righteous communion with anyone, and a community is certainly a communion. So Luther is correct in his assessment of the Jews, but wrong to have any expectation of how Jews could possibly be hospitable. That's a digression. We'll get back on the main theme, which is the Jewish slander against Mary. And Luther says, What harm has the poor maiden Mary done to them? How can they prove that she was a whore? She did no more than bear a son, whose name is Jesus. Is it such a great crime for a young wife to bear a child? Or are all who bear children to be accounted whores? What then? is to be said about their own wives and about themselves. Are they too all whores and the children of whores? Luther seems to be saying that even if Mary was not a virgin, that does not necessarily make her a whore. But on the other hand, if the child was not Joseph's, she must have been a virgin, or she participated 
in some form of immorality because she was indeed betrothed to Joseph. However, Joseph's acceptance of Mary as his wife and his disdain to have her put away or prosecuted for immorality, that alone should be sufficient proof of the veracity of the claims made in the gospel account and are indeed sufficient proof that Mary's name is cleared of any wrongdoing if her husband, who is the only actual witness, could not accuse her, then no other man has any right to accuse her. Luther's argument, while it's noble, may have been better developed. He goes on to say, and and he's putting the words in the mouth of the Jews, he's being sarcastic once again, you accursed goyim, that is a different story. Do you not know that the Jews are Abraham's noble blood, circumcised, and kings in heaven and on earth? Whatever they say is right. If there were a virgin among the accursed goyim as pure and holy as the angel Gabriel, and the least of these noble princes were to say that she is an arch whore and viler than the devil, it would necessarily have to be so. The fact that a noble mouth of the lineage of Abraham said this would be sufficient proof. Who dares contradict him? Conversely, any arch whore of the noble blood of the Jews, though she were as ugly as the devil himself, would still be purer than any angel if the noble lords were pleased to say this. And, and Luther is making a dramatically sarcastic diatribe here. And he means to say that the Jews would have us believe that any Jewish claims whatsoever are above reproach simply because those claims are made by Jews. He continues, For the noble circumcised lords have the authority to lie, defame, revile, blaspheme, and curse the accursed goyim as they wish. On the other hand, they are privileged to bless, praise, and exalt themselves, even if God disagrees with them. Do you suppose that a Jew is such a bad fellow? God in heaven and all the angels have to laugh and dance when they hear a Jew pass wind, so that you accursed goyim may know what excellent fellows the Jews are. For how could they be so bold as to call Mary a whore with whom they find no fault. They can find no fault if they were not vested with the power to trample God and his commandment underfoot. And, and Luther is, although it's dramatic, he's doing a good job of portraying that the Jews indeed perceived themselves to be above God. But that's only because they are really devils, and only devils would dare to do such a thing. Well and good, you and I, as a cursed goyim, wish to submit a simple illustration by means of which we, as benighted heathen, and by that term benighted, Luther means lost in intellectual darkness, to have night fall over one. 
We, as benighted heathen, might comprehend this lofty wisdom of the noble holy Jews a little. Let us suppose that I had a cousin or another close blood relative of whom I knew no evil, and in whom I had never detected any evil, and other people against whom I bore a grudge, praised and extolled her, regarded her as excellent, pious, virtuous, laudable woman, and said, this dunce is not worthy of having such a fine, honorable woman as his cousin, a she-dog or a she-wolf, would be more fit for him. Then I, upon hearing such eulogies of my cousin spoken, would begin to say against my own conscience, they are all lying. She is an arch whore. And now I would, though lacking any proof, demand that everyone believe me, despite the fact that I was well aware of my cousin's innocence, while I, a consummate liar, was cursing all who refused to believe my lie, which I knew in my heart to be just that. Tell me, how would you regard me? Would you not feel impelled to say that I was not a human being, but a monster, a repulsive fiend, not worthy of gazing at the sun, leaves, grass, or any creature? Indeed, you would consider me to be possessed by devils. I should rather treat my cousin's disgrace, if I knew of any, as though it were my own, and covered up if threatened to become public, just as all other people do. But although no one, including myself, knows anything but honorable things about her, I dare to step to the fore and defame my cousin as a scoundrel, with false slander, oblivious to the fact that this shame reflects on me. And he's talking about the Jewish treatment of Mary, as if the Jews were actually the cousins to Mary. The nature of the Jewish argument by itself defeats the Jewish argument. If Mary were reproachable, her own cousins may have offered her reproach, as we see in the Gospel records. Her cousins accepting her and her account, Mary is therefore irreproachable, just like her husband accepted her in her condition. She is irreproachable. Luther goes on to say, that is the type of human beings. If I should or could call them that, of course, they shouldn't be. They should not be, let me make that clear, which these noble, circumcised saints are. We goyim, with whom they are hostile and angry, confess that Mary is not ours, but rather the Jew's cousin and blood relative descended from Abraham. And of course, Luther is confused because Mary was not the cousin in that manner to the Edomite Jews. She was a much, much more distant cousin. The Jews were lying about things that Luther could not conceive. When we praise and loud her highly, they proceed to defame her viciously. If there were a genuine drop of Israelite blood in such miserable Jews, do you not suppose that they would say, what are we to do? Can she help it that her son provoked our ire? Luther's basically criticizing the Jews, imagining Mary to be one of their own for throwing her under the bus along with Christ. 
Why should we slander her? After all, she is our flesh and blood. It has undoubtedly happened before that a bad son issued from a pious mother. In other words, the Jews have no reason, if the Jews were actually Israelites, to ever attack Mary because of their dislike of her son. And they show their own poor demeanor to say the least, in doing so. And Luther's argument in that respect is good. But the truth is that the Jews are not the cousins of Mary or Christ. They are not the close relatives that Luther believes, mistakenly believes that they are. He goes on to say, no such human and responsible thoughts will occur to these holy people, but they must entertain nothing but devilish thoughts so that they may in that way do penance and merit the Messiah soon, as they have, of course, merited him now for 1,500 years. Luther is playing on the, on, on the Jewish claims that they deserve a messiah. Luther doesn't understand that they are actually devils. Here Luther even seems to deny that the Jews have Israelite blood. He says if there were a genuine drop of Israelite blood in such miserable Jews. So Luther had come so close to the truth, yet he did not have the tools he needed to put a seal upon it. In part four of this essay on the Jews and their lives, Luther referred to the Jews of his time as the modern Jews and bastards in contrast to the original authentic Jews. He called them Jews. But he's in contrasting the modern Jews and bastards to the Israelites of the Bible. He also called them, in part four, false bastards and strange Jews. In part seven of his essay, he referred to them as our bastards and pseudo-Jews. So he sees all this, but he never goes so far as to reject their claims to be the people of Israel which he rightly should have done, he, and he was apparently so close to doing that, but he never took those final steps. More unfortunately, <coughs> excuse me, right up to the end, right up until his very last sermon, um, and I'm going to present Martin Luther's last sermon tomorrow on Christianity in Europe, he still held out the possibility that Jews can be converted to Christ. And that's a shame. We shall be presenting that tomorrow on Christianity Europe, Luther's last sermon. Martin Luther goes on to say, they further lie and slander him and his mother by saying that she conceived him at an unnatural time, which would mean that time in a month, 
which is when conceptions under Hebrew law are impossible because men should abstain from their women at that time. About this, they are most malicious and malignant and malevolent. Of course, there's no foundation anywhere for the accusation, but the Jews never need a foundation for their accusations. In Leviticus 20.18, Moses declares that a man must not approach a woman nor a woman a man during the female's menstrual uncleanness. This is forbidden on pain of loss of life and limb. For whatever is conceived at such a time results in imperfect and infirm fruit, that is, insane children, mental deficients, demons' offspring, offspring, changelings, and the like, people who have unbalanced minds all their lives. Luther should have seen that in the Jews. That's what they are. In this way, the Jews would defame us Christians by saying that we honor as the Messiah a person who is mentally deficient from birth or some sort of demon. These most intelligent, circumcised, and highly enlightened saints regard us as such stupid and accursed goyim. Truly, these are the devil's own thoughts and words. And Luther went, and, and properly identified them, but wouldn't properly label them for what they were. Do you ask what prompts them to write this, or what is the cause of it? You stupid, accursed boy, why should you ask that? Does it not satisfy you to know that this is said by the noble, circumcised saints? Are you so slow to learn that such a holy people is exempt? from all the decrees of God, and cannot sin. They may lie, blaspheme, defame, and murder whom they will, even God himself and all his prophets. All of this must be accounted as nothing but a fine service rendered to God. Did I not tell you earlier that the Jew is such a noble, precious jewel that God and all the angels dance when he farts. And if he were to go on to do something coarser than that, they would nevertheless expect it to be regarded as a golden Talmud. Whatever issues from such a holy man, from above or below, must surely be considered by the accursed Goyim to be pure holiness. And Luther's diatribes against the nature and the spirit of the Jews are much more valuable than even his religious arguments. Even if many of the religious arguments are valid, his depiction of the Jews and their attitudes are entirely accurate to this very day. For if a Jew were not so precious and noble, how would it be possible for him to despise all Christians with their Messiah and his mother so thoroughly to vilify them with such malicious and poisonous lies. If these fine, pure saints, smart saints, would only concede us the qualities of geese or ducks, since they refuse to let us pass for human beings. The Jews have, of course, perverted the holy biblical comparison of the non-Adamic mixed races to pure, brute beasts.
maybe pure isn't the adjective I was looking for, to absolute brute beasts, the Bible tells us in its analogies, in the metaphors that it uses, that bastards are beasts, that non-Adamic people are nothing but beasts. And that even Adamic people who follow after the enemies of God should be accounted as nothing but beasts. Luther was, and the Jews were precluded. The Jews consider Goyim to be nothing but beasts. The Jews were precluded by the warnings of the apostles, and if Christians would only read their Bibles, they might see this. And Jude and Peter, most notably, that it is the Jews themselves who are beasts. Jude and Peter both very plainly state that the Jews, those who reject Christ, those who are spots in our feasts of charity, are nothing but brute beasts made to be taken and destroyed. The apostles have informed Christians that those who deny Christ are brute beasts long before Christians heard those words at the mouth of the Jews. If Christians had believed it, perhaps they wouldn't be trapped by the Jews in their own language. If Luther had read Jude and Peter, perhaps he shouldn't have been tricked into thinking by Lyra and Burgos that the Jews were the people of God and that their conversion was possible because it certainly is not. Even a Jew that calls himself a Christian is nothing but a wicked devil perverting and corrupting the word of God. Luther goes on to say, For the stupidity which they ascribe to us, I could not assign to any sow, which, as we know, covers itself with mire from head to foot and does not eat anything much cleaner. Alas, it cannot be anything but the terrible wrath of God which permits anyone to sink into such abysmal, devilish, hellish, insane, baseless, baselessness and arrogance. If I were to avenge myself on the devil himself, I should be unable to wish him such evil and misfortune as God's wrath inflicts on the Jews, compelling them to lie and to blaspheme so monstrously in violation of their own conscience. Anyway, they have their reward for constantly giving God the lie. Luther is evidently being sarcastic and playing off of a claim by the Jews that their sin is a punishment from God. In his Bible, Sebastian Munster 
relates that a malicious rabbi does not call the dear mother of Christ Maria, but Haria, i.e. Sterquilinium, a dung heap. And who knows what other villainy they may indulge in among themselves, unknown to us. Paul of Tarsus said that the things that they do in secret shouldn't even be repeated. One can readily perceive how the devil constrains them to the basest lies and blasphemies he can contrive. Thus they also begrudge the dear mother Mary, the daughter of David, her right name, although she has not done them any harm. If they do that, why should they not also begrudge her, her life, her goods, and her honor? And if they wish and inflict all kinds of disgrace and evil, on their own flesh and blood, which is innocent and about which they know nothing, what do you suppose might they wish upon us a a cursed goyim? Sebastian Munster, the second non-Jewish Christian which Luther cites in his paper. Sebastian Munster was a German Christian student of Hebrew who had been under the tutelage of a Jew. He was a Franciscan monk who later joined the Lutheran Church and taught at the University of Basel. He was the first German. He preceded Luther. He was the first German to make an edition of the Bible. He also authored a popular book on geography, the first German geography, published originally in 1544. Yet they presume to step before God with such a heart and mouth. They utter, worship, and invoke his holy name, entreating him to return them to Jerusalem, to send them the Messiah, to kill all the Gentiles, and to present them with all the goods of the world. Those promises the Bible still makes to the actual children of Israel. Luther can't imagine those promises being fulfilled to the Jews, and it's rightly so, because he understands that they certainly do not merit them, especially in their rejection of Christ. But the Jews claim those things, which are found in the prophets, for themselves. Luther would have probably been pleased to know that he was really the Israelite, and that those promises were for his race. The only reason that God does not visit them with thunder and lightning, that he does not deluge them suddenly with fire, as he did Sodom and Gomorrah, is this. The punishment would not be commensurate with such malice. Therefore, he strikes them with spiritual thunder and lightning, as Moses writes in Deuteronomy 28.18, among other places, the Lord will smite you with madness and blindness and confusion of mind. Those are indeed the true strokes of lightning and thunder, blindness, madness, and confusion of mind. Luther is confusing the punishment of Israel with the plight of the Jews when indeed the Jews themselves are the tool in the hand of God punishing true Israel, who are Luther's Gentiles. Luther has it all backwards. 
We'll discuss this verse further later. Although these terrible, slanderous, blasphemous lies are directed particularly against the person of our Lord and his dear mother, they are also intended for our own persons. They want to offer us the greatest affront and insult for honoring a Messiah whom they curse and malign so terribly that they do not consider him worthy of being named by them or any human being much less of being revered. Thus we must pay for believing in him, for praising, honoring, and serving him. Isn't that what the Bible says? All day like sheep, we are led to the slaughter. If the Gentiles are not true Israel, then all of the promises concerning a Messiah in Scripture are vanity, mistakenly believing that the Jews are Israel. The Christian has no hope but for the Jews' conversion. If the Jews were Christians, they would receive all of those promises made explicitly for Israel. The Gentiles would have no place in any of those promises and we would be in even greater trouble. The mistaken identity of parties, historical and biblical, weaves a tangled web of lies and deceit, which Martin Luther is hopelessly caught up in. He goes on to say, I should like to ask, however, what harm has the poor man Jesus done to these holy people? If he was a false teacher, as they allege, he was punished for it. For this he received his due. For this he suffered with a shameful death on the cross. For this he paid and rendered satisfaction. No accursed heathen in all the world will persecute and malign forever a poor dead man who suffered his punishment for his misdeeds. How then does it happen that these most holy, blessed Jews outdo the accursed heathen? To begin with, they declare that Jerusalem was not destroyed, nor, nor were they led into captivity for the sin of crucifying Jesus. And actually, they were dispersed at 70 AD. And Christ tells us why. It's not for their sin in crucifying Jesus. It's to be a curse and a reproach for the vengeance of God until the day of their destruction, not the day of their conversion. For they claim to have done the right thing when they meted out justice to the seducer and thus merited their Messiah. Is the fault of the dead man is it the fault of the dead man who has now met his judgment that we Goyim are so stupid and foolish to honor him as our Messiah? Why do they not settle the issue with us, convincing us of our folly and demonstrate their lofty heavenly wisdom? We have never fled from them. We are still standing our ground and defying their holy wisdom. Let us see what they are able to do for it is most unseemly for such great saints to crawl into a corner and to curse and scold in hiding. Now, as I began to ask earlier, what harm has the poor Jesus done to the most holy children of Israel that they cannot stop cursing him after his death, with which he paid his debt? Is it perhaps that he aspires to be the Messiah, which they cannot tolerate 
Oh no, for he is dead. They themselves crucified him, and a dead person cannot be the Messiah. Perhaps he is an obstacle to their return into their homeland. No, that is not the reason either, for how can a dead man prevent that? What then is the reason? I will tell you, as I said before, it is the lightning and thunder of Moses to which I referred before. The Lord will smite you with madness and blindness and confusion of mind. It is the eternal fire which the prophets speak of. My wrath will go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it. And Luther, that's Jeremiah 4.4, Luther fails to discern the difference between the good and bad figs of Jerusalem, and that by Jeremiah's time, these good and bad figs in Jerusalem were only a tiny fraction of an Israel and Judah already long gone into captivity, and none of them were ever called Jews. If Luther had traced the history of the good and the bad figs, of Jerusalem, of Jeremiah's prophecy, he would have realized, perhaps, that the Jews were not Israel at all. Some of them partially descended from Israel, but Luther was more appropriate to call them bastard Jews and false Jews, because they're not Judah. And that is the Spirit of Christ. Revelation 2.9, Revelation 3.9, those who claim to be Judeans, but are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. That's what they are. They're devils. They're not Israelites at all. John the Baptist proclaimed the same message to them after Herod had removed their scepter, saying, his winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into his granary. But his chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. And of course, Herod could not remove a scepter that Yahweh God promised to Judah. And Luther has a peculiar interpretation of Genesis 49.10. If Luther could see the Sodom and Gomorrah, which the Jews have made of the world today, and he had all these complaints about the Jews of 500 years ago, wow, he would just go berserk because the Jews have truly recreated Sodom and Gomorrah all over Christendom today. And Luther might actually, at that time, realize who they truly are. He goes on to say, Now such devilish lies and blasphemy are aimed at the person of Christ and of his dear mother. But our person and that of all Christians are also involved. They are also thinking of us, because Christ and Mary are dead, and because we Christians are such vile people to honor 
these despicable dead persons, they also assign us our special share of slander. Luther missed the entire significance of the words of Christ in John chapter 10. You are not my sheep. You do not believe me because you are not my sheep. But what's even worse, it's hard to tell if Luther is simply attributing this idea to the Jews, which is possible, or if he accepts it himself. Christ isn't dead. Christ lives. That's the Christian hope and the Christian promise. That's what the resurrection is all about. Perhaps he's only attributing this attitude to the Jews themselves, and that is their attitude. In the first place, they lament before God that we are holding them captive in exile, and they implore him ardently to deliver his holy people and dear children from our power and the imprisonment in which we hold them. The children of Israel went into captivity with the Assyrians. Luther's Jews didn't go into captivity. They were driven as slaves into every nation to be a curse and a reproach. Luther is accepting the pretenses of the Jews and confusing the captivities of Israel with the captivity of the Jews. And that shouldn't, that certainly should not be done. The Bible very clearly makes them two absolutely separate events. No matter the regard with which we esteem the Jews' captivity, the Jew would never leave Christian lands voluntarily. We know that today, where they've had every opportunity to go back to Israel for 70 years now and longer, and they refuse to leave New York, Miami, London. They don't even entertain the idea, most of them. It's all a charade. It's part of their game. They dub us Edom and Hamas. Haman, of course, was the famous um, executioner of the romantic novel, which is called the Book of Esther. They dub us Edom and Haman, with which names they would insult us grievously before God and hurt us deeply. However, it would carry us too far afield to enlarge on this. They know very well that they are lying here. If it were possible... I would not be ashamed to claim Edom as my forefather, Martin Luther's words. He was the natural son of the saintly Rebecca, the grandson of the dear Sarah. Abraham was his grandfather and Isaac his real father. Moses himself commands them to regard Edom as their brother, Deuteronomy 23, 7. They indeed obey Moses as the true Jews. Evidently, Luther didn't read Romans chapter 9 or understand it. And Luther is oblivious to the Edomite identity of today's Jews. 
He also seems to be oblivious to the Edomite population in Judea, even though he admits earlier in his paper that Herod himself was an Edomite. In truth, a great percentage of the people of Judea were Edomites and not Israelites at all. And they are the forebears of today's Jews. You do not believe me because you are not my sheep. There were Israelites in Judea in the first century, and there were Edomites in Judea in the first century. Which group is not Christ's sheep? Christ may have said, you don't believe me because you are Edomites. And Josephus attests to that. And the Greek geographer Strabo, in the 16th book of his geography, he attests to that. And Paul of Tarsus attests to that in Romans chapter 9. And attributes that issue to being the cause of the division in Judea in the first century, in Romans chapter 9. And Luther missed it entirely. Probably because as it seems from this entire writing. His primary influences on these issues were Jews, and they are not able to tell the truth of that matter, Lyra, Burgos. They can't tell the truth of that. They would undermine themselves. Luther also seems to be ignorant of the scriptural implications of having a Canaanite for a mother if indeed Esau was your forefather. Then you're of Canaanite stock. One drop, that's all it takes, and you're a bastard. He's oblivious to that. Further, they presume to instruct God and prescribe the manner in which he is to redeem them. For the Jews, these very learned saints, look upon God as a poor cobbler equipped with only a left last for making shoes. And by last, he's referring to a mechanical foot around which a shoe is made. Luther implies that the Jews consider God a poor shoemaker who can make only left-footed shoes. This is to say that he is to kill and exterminate all of us goyim through their Messiah so that they can lay their hands on the land, the goods, and the government of the whole world. And now a storm breaks over us with curses, defamation, and derision that cannot be expressed with words. They wish that sword and war distress, and every misfortune may overtake us accursed goyim. They vent their curses on us openly every Saturday in their synagogues and daily in their homes. They teach, urge, and train their children from infancy to remain the bitter, virulent, and wrathful enemies of the Christians. Luther, of course, didn't live to see the Thirty Years' War that the Protestant Reformation eventually brought to Germany when the Catholic Church tried to gain it back for the Pope. And half of Germany was wiped out 
his words here are, are, are very close to being prophetic. And of course, when the Jew was emancipated in the French Revolution, since that time, well over a hundred million Christians have died in Europe at the hands of Jewish-inspired wars, Jewish-instigated wars, and actual direct Jewish involvement, things such as the Bolshevik Revolution and the starvation of Ukraine, and so on. Luther would have shuddered to see those things, but his words are certainly prophetic of them. This gives you a clear picture of their conception of the fifth commandment and their observation of it, as if they were ever supposed to observe it. They have been bloodthirsty bloodhounds and murderers of all Christendom for more than 1,400 years in their intentions and would indubitably prefer to be such with their deeds. Thus they have been accused of poisoning water and wells, of kidnapping children, of piercing them through with an awl, of hacking them in pieces, and in that way secretly cooling their wrath with the blood of Christians, for all of which they have often been condemned to death by fire. And, and there were many pogroms of the Jews in medieval times for all of those various reasons. Today, missing children and poisoned food supplies are still serious problems in every Christian nation. And Christians are now in denial. It is Christians who fulfill the passage from Moses that Luther loves, loves to cite, where it says in Deuteronomy 28, 28, the Lord shall smite thee with madness and blindness and astonishment of heart. Christians suffer that because the Jews are now in control of all Christian lands and they're doing those same things, poisoning wells. They do it in the name of science now. And they put all kinds of chemicals, fluoride, in our water. They're poisoning our wells, poisoning our food supply, hormones, genetic modifications, all kinds of unnatural substances in our food. The Jews are doing the same thing today that they will run out of every place in Europe for, except today they're sophisticated. They do it in the name of science. Luther goes on here to even reveal the mechanizations of the Jews who claim to be doctors. And still God refused to lend an ear to the holy penitence of such great saints and dearest children. The unjust God let such holy people curse, I want to say pray, so vehemently in vain against our Messiah and all Christians. He does not care to see or have anything to do either with them or with their pious conduct, which is so thickly, thickly, heavily, heavily coated with the blood of the Messiah and his Christians. For these Jews are much holier 
than were those in the Babylonian captivity who did not curse, well, they weren't really Jews, Luther, who did not secretly shed the blood of children nor poison the water, but who rather, as Jeremiah had instructed them, prayed for their captors, the Babylonians. They were Israelites, Luther. They were future Gentiles. Luther didn't get that. The reason is, they were not as holy as the present-day Jews, nor did they have such smart rabbis as the present-day Jews have. For Jeremiah, Daniel, and Ezekiel were big fools to teach this. They would, I suppose, be torn to shreds by the teeth of today's Jews. And, of course, they would be, because they weren't Jews. Now, behold, what a fine, thick, fat lie they pronounce when they say that they are held captive by us. Jerusalem was destroyed over 1,400 years ago, and at that time, we Christians were harassed and persecuted by the Jews throughout the world for about 300 years, as we had said earlier, and that is true. The early Christian writers, Tertullian and Minucius Felix, both attest that the persecution of Jews, uh, I'm sorry, of Christians by the Romans was at the instigation of the Jews. The Jews were behind all the persecutions of Christians in the first centuries of Christianity. We might well complain that during that time they held us Christians captive and killed us, which is the plain truth. Furthermore, we do not know to the present day which devil brought them into our country. We surely did not bring them from Jerusalem. Of course, the Jews themselves are devils. The typical histories, and I'm not really a um, deep student of the Middle Ages, but the typical histories report that Charlemagne himself first admitted Jews into the Frankish Empire because he thought that they were good for commerce, which is always the trick that they use to get into Christian lands, that they're good for commerce. In addition, no one is holding them here now. The country and the roads are open for them to proceed to their land whenever they wish. If they did so, we would be glad to present gifts to them on the occasion, it would be good riddance, for they are a heavy burden, a plague, a pestilence, a sheer misfortune for our country. Proof for this is found in the fact that they have often been expelled forcibly from a country, far from being held captive in it. Thus, they were banished from France, which they call Sorfat from Obadiah 20, which was an especially fine nest. Now, evidently, this is a reference to Zarephath, where it says in Obadiah 20, and the captivity of this host of the children of Israel shall possess that of the Canaanites, even unto Zarephath, and the captivity of Jerusalem, which is in Sepharad, shall possess the cities of the south. Luther is... Um, displaying the Jewish interpretation of Obadiah, where evidently France was identified as Zarephath and Spain 
as Sephiroth. And he goes on to say, Very recently they were banished by our dear Emperor Charles from Spain, the very best nest of all, which they call Sephirad, also on the basis of Obadiah. And of course the Jews absolutely pervert the scriptures. This year they were expelled from the entire Bohemian crown land, which they had, where they had one of the best nests in Prague. And the Czech part of Czechoslovakia is ancient Bohemia. Luther still referred to it as Bohemia. Likewise, during my lifetime, they had been driven out from Regensburg, Magdeburg, and other places. If you cannot tolerate a person in a country or home, does that constitute holding him in captivity. In fact, they told us Christ- they hold us Christians captive in our own country. They let us work in the sweat of our brow to earn money and property while they sit behind the stove, idle away the time, fart and roast pears. Luther seems to be infatuated with Jewish flatuations. They stuff themselves, guzzle, and live in luxury and ease from our hard-earned goods. With their accursed usury, they hold us and our property captive. Moreover, they mock and deride us because we work and let them play the role of lazy squires at our expense and in our land. Thus, they are our masters and we are their servants with our property, our sweat, and our labor, and by way of reward and thanks, they curse our Lord and us. Should the devil not laugh and dance if he can enjoy such a fine paradise at the expense of us Christians? He devours what is ours to his saints, the Jews, and repays us by insulting us in addition to mocking and cursing both God and man. And, of course, usury is forbidden and is actually anti-Christian, even though Christ used it as an example in several parables. We should not derive doctrine from parables. Parables are there for us to learn from. But we shouldn't get our doctrine on God's law from parables. Usury is an evil Martin Luther properly recognized usury as an evil, and we should not allow the Jews in our lands to create our money and charge us for it at usury. In the Hebrew law, usury is only permissible when the children of Israel had aliens in their lands and loaned to those aliens at usury. And that was, ostensibly, so that these dare strangers, these sojourners, wouldn't be able to take advantage of the Hebrew laws governing Israelite associations with brethren Israelites. That our kindness and good graces would be reserved to ourselves. The Jews, of course, charge each other interest. 
because the Jews certainly aren't Israelites. They are indeed greedy devils. Christianity made a huge mistake in accepting usury. Martin Luther never accepted it. Calvin did accept it. The Reformed theologians accepted it. Cotton Mather in New England accepted usury and, and wrote papers and convinced his fellow New England pastors, at least a great number of them, that usury was acceptable. It was not acceptable. Cotton Mather, if you ever wonder one if you ever want to wonder why he's on the lips of every schoolchild in American history classes, it's because he did the work of the Jews and convinced Puritan New Englanders that usury was acceptable for business, for commerce. And Luther's hated because he scorned it. Properly so. We should scorn it. We should not have Jewish usury in Christian lands at all. They could not have enjoyed such good times in Jerusalem under David and Solomon with their own possessions as they now do with ours, which they daily steal and rob. And, and Luther's misconceptions put him at odds with himself. Of course, David and Solomon were not Jews. The Jews were there. They were the Canaanites, the Edomites. And yet they well that we have taken them captive. Indeed, we have captured them and hold them in captivity, just as I hold captive my gallstone, my bloody tumor, and all the other ailments and such misfortunes which I have to nurse and take care of with money and goods and all that I have. Alas, I wish that they were in Jerusalem with the Jews and whomever else would like to have there. They would like to have there. Here Luther reveals some of the reasons for which he apparently died at the young age of 62, about three years after this essay was written. He died in uh, February of 1546 and evidently suffered from gallstones and a bloody tumor whatever he meant by that, along with other sicknesses and misfortunes. So Luther was apparently not in very good physical health. A lot of people think Luther was poisoned. When Luther um, gave his last sermon, the one I'm going to present tomorrow, he knew that he was sick. He knew that he was on his deathbed here writing this. He knew that he was sick and he was about to die. Therefore, I would um, be critical of those who surmised that Luther was poisoned and that was why he died. It's obvious he was sick for quite some time. Maybe, as he will reveal in his papers, he was um, poisoned at a much earlier time. He mentioned the... Um, the Jews who like to pose as physicians 
and poison Christians with poisons, some which take 10 or 20 years to kill. Today we call them vaccines and, and other things that the Jews poison us with, posing as physicians. Christians should never go to physicians. If, if they could avoid it, they should. A lot of people are uh, locked into physicians before they find the truth, and, and we should pray for those people. But if you can stay healthy, stay away from these doctors. Luther had them pegged. So perhaps he was poisoned 10 or 20 years before he actually died, as he himself said was possible, and he understood that. Today we should understand that also, that the Jewish poisons, the sorcery which passes from medicine, may not kill you tomorrow, but when you load your bloodstream up with mercury and monkey guts, it sure as hell is going to kill you sooner or later. It's going to have an adverse effect on your health in the future. Lucerne knew that, and we will see that before the series ends. Since it has now been established that we do not hold them captive, that must have been one of the claims of the Jews, that the Gentiles were holding them captive when Luther saying that they could go back anytime they want. How does it happen that we deserve the enmity of such noble and great saints? We do not call their women whores as they do Mary, Jesus' mother. We do not call them children of whores as they do our Lord Jesus. We do not say that they were conceived at the time of cleansing and were thus born as idiots, as they say of our Lord. We do not say that their women are haria, as they do with regard to our dear Mary. We do not curse them, but wish them well, physically and spiritually. We lodge them. We let them eat and drink with us. We do not kidnap their children and pierce them through all the accusations of Jewish ritual murder, which were true. We do not poison their wells. We do not thirst for their blood. How then do we incur such terrible anger, envy, and hatred on the part of such great and holy children of God? There is no other explanation for this than the one cited earlier from Moses, namely, that God has struck them with madness and blindness and confusion in mind. So we are even at fault in not avenging all this innocent blood of our Lord and of the Christians which they shed for 300 years after the destruction of Jerusalem and the blood of the children they have shed since then which still shines forth from their eyes and their skin. And Luther earlier in this essay seemed to have expressed the possibility that perhaps some of the uh, ritual murder claims were not true. He didn't want to uh, address them at that time. Here he does assert that they are true. The shame is that it's Christians who are truly the children of Israel, white Christians in Europe anyway, and that it's Christians who are struck as part of the punishment of the children of Israel with madness and blindness and confusion of mind. And that explains why we do not avenge 
church, the innocent blood which the Jews are shedding in Christian lands unto this very day. We refuse to accept that the Jews are acting in concert so treacherously against Christians day after day after day. We refuse to accept that as a people because it is us, the children of Israel, who are being punished and struck with madness and blindness and confusion of mind. It is Christians who have long owed the Jews a real holocaust, and that is what Luther is saying here. That promise is in Obadiah, but Luther cannot understand the words of the prophet because he misidentifies the parties involved. He goes on to say, we are at fault in not slaying them, and he's certainly right. He has the Jews pegged for their behavior, but he doesn't understand their true identity. Rather, he says, we allow them to live freely in our midst despite all their murdering, cursing, blaspheming, lying, and defaming. We protect and shield their synagogues, houses, life, and property. In this way, we make them lazy and secure and encourage them to fleece us boldly of our money and goods. This is 500 years ago, and it's been going on ever since. This has never stopped. As well as to mock and deride us with a view to finally overcoming us, killing us for all, killing us all for such a great sin, meaning the acceptance of the Messiah, and robbing us of all our property as they daily pray and hope. Now, tell me whether they do not have every reason to be the enemies of us accursed Goyim, to curse us and to strive for our final, complete, and eternal ruin. From all of this, we Christians see for the Jews cannot see it. What terrible wrath of God these people have incurred and still incur without ceasing. What a fire is gleaming and glowing there, and what they achieve who curse and detest Christ and his Christians. Oh, dear Christians, let us take this horrible example to heart, as St. Paul says in Romans chapter 2, and fear God, lest we also finally fall victims to such wrath, and even worse. Rather, as we said also earlier, let us honor his divine word and not neglect the time of grace, as Muhammad and the Pope have already neglected it, becoming not much better than the Jews. And of course, Muhammad and the Pope of Luther's time were both products of the Jews. Luther couldn't see that either. In Romans 2.5, Paul talks about the wrath of God against the unjust and impenitent, both of the Judeans and of the Greeks. And he's referring to the children of Israel who do not turn to Christ, who would suffer the wrath of God. And ultimately, millions and millions and hundreds of millions of us have done that have suffered those things. If we turn to Christ, we would believe Christ concerning the nature of the devils, and we would not trust the Jews. Luther knew that we shouldn't trust them for their treachery and their evil character and their nature, 
but he still saw it. <laughs> Absolutely contrary to his own instincts, he still took for granted their claims that they were the people of God, even though he also knew that they were bastards. It's incredible. He was blind. It's providence. It's the will of God for the children of Israel to fulfill the time of their punishment. Luther couldn't help himself but to be partly blind. We should employ Luther to learn from his mistakes and to better understand our predicament today, the reasons for it, and the fact that only God can save us. Thank you for listening. I'll be here tomorrow afternoon with Christogenia Europe, 2 p.m. Eastern Time. I'll be here Friday with 1 Corinthians, Part 4, The Eternal Spirit of Man. All Israel will indeed be saved. Praise Yahweh, and good night.